0: Fell right down that rabbit hole So reality is questionable Try but you just can't let it go These two right here put on the show It's paranormal, overload with southern hospitality Hard that murder, mayhem tip while discussing immortality Locations with a dark past History that comes to life Hillbillies with a knack for Happy that goes bump at night Overthinking if you by yourself These two will have you turning on the lights Mixing in a
1: little comedy To make sure it all fits in just right hey. Welcome to Hillbilly Horror Story. Now, here's your host, Jerry and Frank
2: Paul, and their dogs, The unnerving horror thriller A House on the Bayou is now available on digital and on demand. A family vacation in rural Louisiana takes a sinister turn when neighbors show up for dinner uninvited, testing the family's fragile bond and forcing dark secrets to come to light. Buy or rent a house on the bayou and watch today. Unrated from Paramount Pictures. Hey guys, welcome to episode 281 of Hillbilly Horror Stories. I'm Jerry. And I'm Tracy. Tracy... I think you're going to like the story we got for this week.
1: Okay, good. I hope so. I usually do.
2: Yeah. Well, well not not the true crime ones.
1: No, no.
2: <laughs> Obviously, before we get started, we want to thank all of our military and civil servants all over the world, no matter which country you represent. Thanks to all of you men, women, and service animals for everything you do.
1: Yes, you guys are the best. We appreciate y'all so much. And um, you know what? Just keep doing it. You're protecting the country. And we appreciate you all so much every single day. The nurses, the doctors, everybody, thank you so much for your hard
2: work. Tracy, I know we bring this up, seems like, for the last several weeks, but it, it's just because it's so accurate that this time of year, people struggle more than they do other times of the year because of the holidays.
1: Yes, it's, and, it's just sad but true.
2: And I know, like, I just talked to somebody just a little bit ago today just happens to be the anniversary of their mom's death Mm. and you know that hits closer to home just like my mom's anniversary is the 10th so it's five days away and when the anniversary of a death happens right around the holidays it just makes it extremely tough on people because that's the first thing you think about whether it be Mm -hmm. you know close to christmas or close to their birthday or your birthday or whatever the case is it just makes that person on your mind even more than than normal
1: Right. I mean, I know it sounds funny, but for me, it's my mom because of Rudolph. I know that sounds silly, but I just watched it yesterday, and I just, I'm just so happy when that comes on. But it was always because mom, even after I moved out, married, all that stuff, she would still call me to remind me Rudolph was coming on that night. She never wanted me to miss it, and I literally have not missed it since 1964. <laughs> I've seen it every year, and but it's those little things, You know, that it's like you're happy that Rudolph's on, but then it makes you sad a little bit because, you know, your mom's not here. So, you know, it's totally understandable.
2: Right. So, if you're struggling right now, whether it be for that reason or any other reason, feel free to reach out to us, just like that person did. Mm -hmm. They just wanted to talk and they felt better after they talked. And they're getting a Christmas card tomorrow when we send out Christmas cards.
1: Awesome. Wonderful.
2: And we just, you know, we want to make sure that people realize that they've got options. Just talk to somebody. I promise you'll feel better. And if it's not us, talk to somebody in the group or a family member. Or what else can they do, Tracy?
1: They can also call the suicide hotline number at 1-800-273-8255. You can text them at 741-741. Just please reach out, guys. We're always here for you.
2: Absolutely. All right. So let's talk about this story. Okay. Tracy, occasionally I find that story that probably only the locals know about. My guess is this story, probably most of the locals won't even know about it. Hmm. This is definitely a hidden gem when it comes to paranormal stories.
1: Well, I'm excited to know where it even is.
2: Well, you'll find out soon enough. After this story, though, we're going to have Diane Satterfield on. She's going to tell us some stories from her book, Paraabnormal in Kentucky. And she's a treat. She's she's not a true author in the sense that she writes a bunch of books. Right. She is a grandma from Louisville that had a bunch of stories, and her kids all urged her to write a book and put these stories in because they didn't want these stories to get lost to time.
1: Well, good for them.
2: So that's what she did. It's available on Amazon, and we're going to talk all about some of the stories in the book, and, and it's she's led a fascinating life when it comes to the paranormal trust me so <laughs> it's uh, it's really fun but you guys are going to really enjoy her tracy our story tonight goes all the way back to 1904 and it takes place in St. Paul, Minnesota
1: oh that's not how far is that from here
2: oh uh, it's pretty far i pretty didn't well it's not that far i'm going to imagine it's probably eight or ten hours oh, okay because it's saint paul and a normal minneapolis trip when we go together. anywhere right huh
1: a normal trip when we go anywhere
2: <laughs> pretty much <laughs> that's where the uh remember we were talking to doug and he was talking about the mall of america that had the oh, roller coasters yeah. and stuff that's up in the saint paul minneapolis area oh cool all right so this the subject of tonight's story is going to be miss Hattie sebastian and she tragically lost her husband back in 1904 in an industrial accident She was now a widow with five children. Mm. The insurance settlement was barely enough to cover any of the necessities of just daily living. Over the next six years, these financial difficulties began to take their toll. And in 1910, Hattie was forced to move her family into the small upstairs apartment in a rickety frame house at 486 Pleasant Avenue in St. Paul, Minnesota. Hattie had a lot of pride, and she told her friends and family that this was the perfect place to raise her family. Hmm. It wasn't. Oh. Well, because mm-hmm. it, the place was falling, falling down, well, basically.
1: Uh, no. that's why I know. I was like, how do you feel Feel that's a perfect place? Because
2: what was she going to say? Well, I've let yeah. all my family down. I'm having to move into a dump.
1: Well, that's true. So that's
2: c- kind of where she was at. The reality is this place, obviously, was far from perfect, but all she could afford, so it is what it is. Mm. Hmm. Because the house was so dilapidated, it didn't surprise the family when they started hearing these strange noises on the very first night that they moved in. The walls and the windows would shake in the entire house, almost like a hurricane was coming through, even when there was no wind outside. Now, I mentioned that the family had moved into the upstairs apartment. The downstairs apartment was vacant at this time. So after hearing these strange noises, Hattie searched all over the rooms, inside the first floor, and inside the bottom floor apartment. She found absolutely nothing to explain the racket. Now, this went on for a month or so. It got to the point that the kids were too frightened to even go to sleep.
1: Oh, I'm sure.
2: Obviously, being a good mom, she had to find a solution. She went to the landlord, and she opted to take the slightly more expensive downstairs apartment, even though it would be a little more of a strain on the family financially. Mm Mm-hmm. This did not fix the problem. The noises continued.
1: Oh, man. So now she's paying more for scary noises.
2: (laughs) Right. Hattie was not about to complain, though, because she was afraid of being ridiculed or, even worse, being evicted. Yeah. I mean, you gotta realize, this was back in the early 1900s. This was a single mother, which, you know, a lot of times they were already had a hard time of doing anything on their own because it was a man's world, obviously, and Landlords would not going to put up a crap. If you was a burden, they were just going to put you out and find somebody who wasn't. So I could understand why she was frightened. We did a story before out of Chicago, I remember. And it was the uh, African-American grandmother and her grandson where they had the poltergeist. And this was in the 60s, if I remember correctly. And they had the same problem. She was having problems in the apartment, but she wouldn't complain to the landlord because being an African-American in the 60s, uh, before the big civil rights movement, she was afraid that she would get kicked out for making a a stink. Mm -hmm. So she wouldn't complain about anything. So it's amazing the similarities between these two stories when it comes to them not wanting to complain about the noises and stuff to the landlord. So we're going to jump to the first major event. This was one night... during the week i didn't have an exact day, but it was during the week between christmas and new year's so right around this time of year so it's coming into play the family had moved into the first floor apartment and when they did so there was a few extras there that they didn't have in the upstairs like for example they had a cellar and the cellar had two levels they had an upper cellar which was smaller Mm -hmm. and then they had a lower cellar which was the bigger part I had never heard this before of having two different levels of cellar. No, me either. So I guess, I mean, they dug out and then they dug out deeper. I guess
1: maybe something for canned goods or stuff like that. And then something deeper in case a tornado came. And that's probably
2: what it was. There was something probably the lower or the first level that was probably where they stored a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. So anyway, so on on this night, two of Hattie's children, eight-year-old Hazel and 11-year-old Rosie, they started down the cellar steps with a blanket to make a bed for their dog, much like the one snoring loudly in the background. (laughs) (laughs) So they were making a blanket for their dog and they were building this in the upper part of the cellar. As they bent over and started arranging the blanket inside of a box, they heard the sound of soft footsteps coming from the lower cellar. They look up from the box and they see this unattractive, stocky man climbing the wooden staircase that led from the lower cellar. Uh, Yeah, no... And I like that they felt the need to mention that he was an unattractive man. I actually changed that because <laughs> they said an ugly man, and I Aww. changed it to unattractive.
1: Oh, my gosh. So
2: <laughs> anyway, he was wearing a, a hairy overcoat. I'm thinking like mole's hair or something. Mole's hair? What the heck is that? You want to see like a mole's hair jacket?
1: Uh, no, weirdo.
2: It's the kind of... <laughs> what? That was very popular back in the day. Wow. It was, it, it literally is a jacket that's made out of hair. Like, you could rub it. It was almost like, it's almost like a wool jacket, in the fa- but it was like, they called it Moe's hair. It was a really short hair. uh
1: uh-huh.
2: I believe you. But I'm just saying. That's I, so bizarre. I'm surprised you never heard of that I know, I've never.
1: Ha oh, ha, no. Anyways. <laughs> I ain't about to wear no hairy thing on my body.
2: He was wearing a hairy overcoat and moccasins. The girls had a lantern, and they could see in the very dim light- that the man had shiny black hair and a black mustache and dark eyes. So they got a really good description of this guy. They screamed loudly. They snatched up the dog and they ran upstairs to their mom. They ran through the door, which led them into the kitchen. Hattie and the two girls slammed the door shut and they put all of their weight against it. Hazel swore that she saw the doorknob turn, but the other two didn't notice it. So not sure if it did or not. A little while later, after all the commotion kind of died down, Hattie lit her lantern, and she decided to survey the situation. She opened the door, held out the lantern, and took a look around. The stairway was completely empty. She tiptoed halfway down and shone the lantern in all directions. All that she could see were things that should be there, like the coal pile that was in a wooden crib, and the furnace ducts that were covered with cobwebs, that stretched out all around the place. What she didn't see was an intruder. Hattie had no clue what happened. Obviously, she wanted to believe her children, but there was absolutely no proof of what they had seen. So, she just dropped it. Especially since they were still getting unpacked from the recent move to the apartment. There was plenty to be done. A few weeks later, in the middle of January, Hattie went into the cellar to split some wood for the cook stove. I I love how in the old days they called it a cook stove. Mm
1: -hmm. That's what my grandma used to call it.
2: Well, there's still, I've had people when I was selling appliances and stuff, I had women that would come in, older women. I never had any men do it, but I had older women would come in and ask if we had any cook stoves. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I guess that's something that just sticks with you, but I don't know. I guess because you had different types of stoves, you had a stove to keep warm and a stove to cook in. Mm -hmm. Mhm. Anyway, so she went down to cut some wood for her cook stove. Just as she lifted the axe to cut the very first piece of wood, she saw a column of white light that passed before her eyes. There was absolutely nothing to account for it. She dropped the axe and she ran upstairs. After this incident, the noises that the family had been hearing since the first night started to intensify. Soft footsteps were now being heard all over the house, All hours of the day and night. They would shuffle from one room to the other.
1: They done agitated somebody.
2: Apparently. Sure. Hattie was becoming anxious and very uneasy. After all, this was something that she had no experience in dealing with. So one evening, Hattie had visitors drop by. Miss J. Pryor and Miss E.A. Hempai. They were two of her very closest friends. The three of them had all been friends for years and years. So Hattie was excited to see them. The ladies sat around discussing current events over tea. What Hattie didn't talk about, though, was the strange happenings in her house.
1: Yeah, I was wondering if she was going to tell them about it.
2: Sometimes, though, your hand is kind of forced, which is what happened on this day. Because as the women were getting ready to leave, Hattie sent her daughter, Emma, who was 22 at the time, and her sister, Minnie, to the bedroom to get the lady's coats. In that room, there was a curtain that separated the bed from the rest of the room. Now, normally this curtain would easily slide along the pole that was put from wall to wall. On this day though, for whatever reason, it wouldn't budge. Even with both sisters pulling on the curtain, it wouldn't slide. A few seconds after they both stopped their effort, the curtain slowly moved backward. The faint glow of their lantern showed the girls a figure of a man that was now standing on the other side of where the curtain was. Was it hairy? He wore a hairy overcoat and a pair of moccasins. He had brown eyes and a black mustache. These were two different girls.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Than, than what was what in the, cell, in but the cellar, exact yeah. same description. Emma said that she stood perfectly still for a few moments because she was fascinated. Then as she began to draw back, a feeling came over her that she would never forget. He seemed to move towards her and just as she felt his arms clasp around her throat, the lower part of his body faded away. Slowly as she stood there petrified with fear, the other half vanished. She screamed and didn't remember anything else except waking up in the living room. Now, according to her mother, this was because Emma had fainted at that point. So then they moved her in. She woke up. The family later learned that a previous tenant sleeping in that same bedroom had awoken in the middle of the night gasping for air. He said that there was a heaviness on his chest and that heaviness would not allow him to set up. It was as if someone was pressing down on his shoulders. When he was able to set up, the covers were jerked off of him. He moved out the following morning. (laughs) The night that Emma fainted, Hattie moved the entire family to the house of friends and family to at least sleep. By this time, the children were so frightened that Hattie kept them out of school. They couldn't even go to school. They were so messed up. The family still stayed at the apartment during the daytime. They just didn't sleep there.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: They actually never slept there again, believe it or not. One morning, Hattie was in the house and she opened the door. And when she did, she was staring right into the eyes of a black-haired man. She said that her head just kind of started to spin. I guess like a dizziness from freaking out.
1: Yeah. Not like pea soup or anything like that no not like that okay
2: and she grabbed the door frame to hold her balance she said the stranger then vanished into the wall now at this point she assumed that again there was an intruder so she called the police four police well i mean
1: oh no stop how can she think it's an intruder when it vanishes into the wall
2: because People will try to find logic anywhere that they can. Maybe she figured that he didn't disappear into the wall. She was already dizzy and lightheaded, and maybe she thought that's just was her mind playing tricks on her from lack of oxygen or something. So after she calls the police, four police officers show up. They did a complete search of the premises but found absolutely no one. On top of that, they didn't find any signs of a forced entry. Well,
1: that's what's happened when you're a ghost. You don't need to force yourself in. <laughs>
2: At this point, they contact the owner of the house, who happened to be the chief of the St. Paul Fire Department, a man by the name of J.J. J. Strap. He said that he would take care of it. The problem is they didn't know what it was or what he meant by he would take care of it, and the chief never actually came around. At least he never talked to Hattie about it. So that was kind of just, a oh, well.
1: He, he did it on his own? <laughs>
2: yeah, I guess. Meanwhile, I <laughs> felt like I was on the... uh. Super Friends. Meanwhile, back at the Hall of Justice. You know who did that voice? That was Ted Knight who did that for the Super Friends.
1: Never even heard of Super Friends. Continue on with your story.
2: My goodness.
1: You keep making all this crap
2: up. I'm pretty sure everybody knows what the Super Friends is. (laughs) Meanwhile, news about the haunted house started to leak out. Everyone in St. Paul was talking about it. Because I can't imagine the population was really big back in 1910 when this happened. Uh So. That would probably make sense. Men in the neighborhood decided they were going to start taking walks doing patrol of the house during the nighttime hours because, remember, the family wasn't staying there at nighttime. So men from the neighborhood decided they were just going to come patrol the area just to see what's was up. Motorists would even stop by with the hope of seeing a ghost. There can't be that many motorists in 1910. I wouldn't think so. Mothers would slowly push their baby strollers as they got close to the house and tightly grip the hands of their toddlers as they passed. Believe it or not, taxi drivers and the streetcar company that ran right by there saw a huge increase of business from people that all wanted to get a look at this house.
1: There you go. (laughs) Win-win.
2: One day in the middle of the winter, which in St. Paul, I think, starts in late August and goes all the way to the following June.
1: Oh God,
2: that's horrible. <laughs> Anyways, one day a cold spell froze the water pipes
1: mm. in the house. I hate when that happens.
2: Hattie went into the cellar and she dug a hole beneath the pipes so she could pour some more warm water over them to thaw them out. As she was about to dump the first bucket of water over the pipes, something caught her eye. She held the lantern closer, got down on her knees. It was a pile of bones, along with some crucifixes and rosaries. Ah. She was afraid to touch them. Being a religious woman, she just was like, had hey, something don't look right. She did notice, though, there was a folded piece of paper. Its edges were all crumpled. She lifted it out and unfolded it. It appeared to be a letter written in French. She didn't know French, so unfortunately she couldn't read it. What she did next really surprised me though. She hurriedly went upstairs and for whatever reason she burned the letter in her kitchen stove and then called the police again. I have no idea why she would burn the letter. So the officers went down to the cellar after showing up at the house. They dug out the religious artifacts and the bones. They turned the bones over to the coroner's office. The coroner then asked professors from the University of Minnesota to examine the bone fragments to try to figure out what it was. They could not come to any conclusion, though, mainly because the bones were so old and dilapidated and all that stuff. I guess dilapidated really don't apply to bones, but you know what I mean. Yeah. The largest bone there was actually a humerus, and the humerus exists in men, women, and animals so, that was going to be tough to figure out. Especially, I'm sure 1910, they didn't have the best forensics possible. The biggest issue here was, like I said, that the bones were too far deteriorated to make any kind of determination of its origin. Now, the crucifix and the rosaries were given to F.J. McCarthy. He wanted to examine them, and he was a dealer in religious artifacts. Those things turned out to be Ancient. He was especially fascinated by the bone crucifix and the rosary. With his finger, he traced every beat of the rosary, and he made the assumption that they artef- these artifacts belonged to a French settler. The reason that he came to this conclusion is because the craftsmanship of the rosary was definitely French, so it would make sense. He also said that the Catholics who had settled in the area years ago possessed these types of rosaries. There was also a mother-of-pearl rosary, that McCarthy said was extremely rare because of the beads were joined together with a silver chains.
1: Hmm. The figure. Wonder why it's. I don't know. Go I don't ahead.
2: Know. I don't know anything about rosaries. So.
1: Yeah. Go ahead.
2: The figure of Christ was also raised on it, instead of stamped on the cross. The beads were made of wood and brass wire. Oh wow! But that was beautiful. These rosaries were worn by nuns. Two of these rosaries had initials on them. J and an M were engraved on both of them. Well, not both. One of them had a J and one of them had an M.
1: Oh, gotcha. Okay.
2: The crucifix was quite the antique as well. It was made of bisque rather than modern metal. And bisque is not a soup, as I would have initially thought it was. Oh. <laughs> That's what I think of. Bisque is like um a pottery... That most people would think of as terracotta. Mm-hmm. So it's it's like it hasn't been through the glazing process. So like a, a a pot that you would put a plant in that doesn't have a shine to it. It's just the yeah, the just clay, like a
1: mat. Like, yeah, like yeah. the
2: very like the just basic clay pots. That's basically what it was made out of. The question is, who buried these things? And probably more importantly, why did they bury these things? Where did the bones come from? What kind of board that was it? An animal was it a sacrifice? What well, Chief Strap, the owner of the house, he said that his father had built this house back in 1880, so that was 30 years before actually 30, yeah, 30 years before this. The Strap family actually lived there all the way up to 1905, and then it was rented to a Frenchman. Now, this was only five years earlier. Mm-hmm. He didn't remember the man's name or what happened to him, he did give a description. He was a man of medium height and weight, black hair, dark eyes, and a thick black mustache. The description matched the man that the Sebastian family had seen on several occasions. Had the man buried the crucifix and the rosary? Who knows? It sounds logical that it would be him since it was all French. That letter that Hattie had burned may have had the answers to all these questions. Unfortunately, that ship has sailed, and we're not going to find out. Why would she burn that?
1: I, I have no idea. Maybe she, she,
2: she didn't touch any of the other stuff, but she took the letter, and then she burned it.
1: Yeah, no, that makes no sense. It's a way anyway, to go.
2: Meanwhile, these people who had been wandering all around the property and was curious, you know, mm-hmm. and the, taking all the taxis and all that stuff, they became a little restless, and they wanted to do a little more, like inspect the inside of the house. So what started happening is people would knock on the front door, people would knock on the back door, all during the day. Hattie would a lot of times greet them, and she'd give them tours, and she'd point out where they had seen the spirit. But the constant constant stream of visitors was exhausting. Oh, I'm sure. They said you could start to see the dark circles under her eyes and everything, and from lack of sleep because of the ghost, and Mm -hmm. from staying somewhere else, and from just people wearing her out. Hattie knew that... This was taking a toll on her and the family. The children were obviously disturbed, and she knew they couldn't continue to live like that. Her neighbors and sympathetic friends, they they packed all of the family's belongings up, their furniture, everything, and moved it all into one room, ready to be moved as soon as a suitable place could be found. Before they moved, there was one request from a gentleman by the name of George Van Cook. He wanted permission to spend the night. Van Cook was a soldier who had built a reputation into quote-unquote de-spooking haunted houses. Hmm. He was certain that he could catch the man in the hairy overcoat. So he went to bed one night, pistol by his side in the bedroom that Emma had fainted in. He pushed back the curtain he sat with his back up against the wall. He said the silence was so unnerving that he found himself starting to nod off. So instead, to keep himself you know, awake, after jerking awake several times, you know how it is when you start oh, to yeah. kind of fall asleep, when you jerk yourself mm-hmm. awake, he said that's what he was doing. So twice, he decided to walk around the apartment just to keep himself awake. The following morning, Van Cook reported that he didn't see or hear anything. Several days later, A seance was held in the house, but again, nothing. A neighbor's child even made the comment, I bet they have pigeons or rats in the attic. Kind of, I guess, trying to explain it away. The spiritualist who conducted the seance said that the French man preferred a quiet, homey atmosphere and that he would not reveal himself in the interest of science. Eventually, the Sebastians found a new apartment on Goodhue Street and they moved. The old house remained vacant for some time, but then eventually two families moved into it. Neither one of the families had heard the story of the ghosts, nor did they report any paranormal activity living there. Today, the entire block of 400 Pleasant Avenue is gone, replaced by a section of the Interstate Highway 35E.
1: Oh my gosh. Well, that's so weird that they didn't encounter anything.
2: No. And I, I think it's even more weird that they didn't hear about the haunting. Yeah,
1: how could they not but have heard do it? But I mean, I guess
2: not that. everybody. I mean, there was enough people had heard to where it was increasing taxi business and streetcar business and all that. But yet these people didn't hear. But I guess, you know, just like anything else, you can, a bunch of people can hear about something and still have way more that hadn't heard about it.
1: Mm-hmm. So. Well, I'm glad she got out of there finally.
2: Yeah. It sucks. But see, wouldn't that a cool little story? Mm-hmm. A lot of stuff happened in that story that I bet most people have never heard of.
1: No. And now there's an interstate. That's crazy.
2: So if you guys live in the St. Paul area and you hear this story, let me know if you've ever heard of that. Mm Mm-hmm. So interesting.
1: Wow. That's some crazy stuff right there.
2: All right. So we're going to take a quick break from our sponsor, and then we're going to come back and do some housekeeping and talk to Diane Satterfield. All righty. All right, Tracy, so we've got, obviously, all of our new shows lined up. We actually do have a date for Indianapolis. Great. It is July 16th. Yeah, July 16th, which is a Saturday. It's Coda's birthday. Is it? Yeah. Well, she's not going to Indianapolis. <laughs> we already did that for we did that on her last time, on her birthday, was in the and Ford show. We
1: yeah, it was,
2: actually. Tickets are available at hillbillyhorrorstories.com. That's going to be, obviously, with the Tragedy of Cinema. And Middle-Aged and Creeped Out, two Indianapolis shows.
1: Oh, man. That sounds great.
2: Yeah, it'll be fun. And we're working on a possible show in Chicago in June. So I'll let you know when we get details as far as who's involved. But if it comes off, like I think it will, it's three really big shows. And I think you guys are really going to love it. So I'll let you know when we know more. Probably know more in the next two weeks.
1: Perfect.
2: Obviously, the cruise is still happening. That's September, so you might want to jump on that so you got time to make payments and stuff like that without trying to come out of pocket with a bunch of money at one time. Information on that, including all the different types of rooms and videos of the rooms and videos of the cruise ship, are available at hibblehorrorstories.com. It's got its own little page for the cruise. Tracy, what do you got over there?
1: Um, well, for iTunes this week, we have Dusk 1980, Mojo Lobster. Brian Scow, 05, and HHH Media. Thank you guys for your really, really nice reviews. We really appreciate those so much. So hopefully you guys can keep them coming. We thank you all for taking your time to do that for us. In our Patreon, says Roseanne Robertson. Thank you, doll, for your support. We appreciate you so much. Um, guys, uh, check out our our store. We have a lot of things in there. And if you have any questions about the tiers of our Patreon um, like the $1, $5 and all that, you know, just shoot us a question and we'll be happy to answer that for you. All
2: right. I do want to mention this. Our buddy, Scott Thornhill, he lives up in Louisville and he's actually hooked us up with some Waverly stuff. His father used to, um, have some dealings with Waverly. So he's got a lot of pull there and, uh, he was able to get us a couple of, uh, uh, nice cool things from Waverly. He also started his own haunted house. It was, it was more of a, Let's just start it. it started small uh, back in Halloween. This it was his first year doing it, but he now is doing a Christmas haunted house. So if you're in the Louisville area and you want to check it out, it's over at the Thorn Hills Fun Center, which is at 7280 Dixie Highway, over by St. Andrew's Church Road. So if you're not in that area, you're probably not going to go. But if you're in Louisville and you're looking for a little bit of a haunted action, He's got all kinds of other stuff there. He's got an escape room and he's got a a party room. Sometimes he's got food and batting cages and all kinds of stuff. So go out there and have some fun. But uh, I know he's going to eventually build it into something big, but he's just getting started right now. So go help him out. Yeah, do it. (laughs) All right, guys, let's listen to Diane Satterfield. And I'm telling you, you're going to walk away a big fan of this woman. She is so sweet.
1: Mm, Yes, she is. I want her
2: to be my grandma. Aww. And she'll probably get mad at me because I'm sure I'm probably too old for her to be my grandma. (laughs) How old do you think I am? (laughs) All right, guys. So let's listen to Diane. Hey, guys. I am excited to have this next guest on because she is a Louisvillian, like I was born and raised. I have Diane Satterfield. And she's the author of a book called Para Abnormal in Kentucky, A Collection of True Stories. Diane, thanks for coming on with us.
0: Oh, well, thank you for inviting me. I'm very excited to uh, be part of your show. And um, I've enjoyed listening to your first four chapters of your book.
2: Oh, thank you so much. I actually, just, I just recorded. It's so funny how that works. I just recorded what I thought was the next two chapters and then uh, realized that I skipped a chapter. So I got to go back and record that oh. one through here. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm telling you, it's it's amazing how long it takes to record just a chapter that might be 10 minutes. It takes me 30 minutes to record it. So I, I am not a good reader. So if you ever do an audio version of your book, be prepared. It's not as easy as it seems. <laughs>
0: Uh-huh. <laughs> well, I think it only took me 16 years to write my, my book. So
2: <laughs> at the rate it's going, it's going to take me 16 years to read mine. So, <laughs> all right. So Diane, tell, let's talk about your book. How did you come to, how did you come into situation to where you wrote the book? Cause I know you were telling me when we talked before that, like you said, it's, it's been a long time in the making. So take me through, why you decided to write a book.
0: Um, My grandchildren had heard some of the things that had happened to me and then other members of the family. And they started saying, you've got to write these stories down before you forget them. And so we'll have them and we can read them again and have them for the rest of the family. And that's why I started. And as I started writing stories, more memories started coming back and I started remembering things that happened when I was a child and really peculiar things that I kind of thought were normal. And, uh, it just, things start flooding back. And so it took, like I said, literally 17 years because I'm thinking, Oh, wait a minute. That's, I remember this happening and, And then subsequently through my work, mostly I stumbled upon some haunted houses. And then we actually moved in one and then had some activity follow us to two more. And so that's how my book came about um, for my family. But then I thought, you know, I haven't had uh, just a very, well, I've had a lot of uh, ups and downs in my life. And I thought maybe this might help someone else thinking, you know, they've had ups and downs and life's just uh, not that great, but uh, great things can happen to us spiritually. And even the paranormal can remind us that there's you know, a whole universe and universes out there and, and spiritual, spiritual life. And so that's, that's how it came about. I thought, okay, well, I'll try to
2: publish this. I actually love that because, you know, that's the only reason that I wrote a book. It really wasn't necessarily to just tell ghost stories. We do that every single week on the show, but Mm -hmm. it was to hopefully try to reach out and help somebody else and realize that, you know, you may not be perfect in life and you might not be proud of who you once were, but you can change all that. And that was my purpose for writing a book. And, you know, yours isn't exactly the same, but it's very similar in in the uh, thought process of maybe it will help somebody.
0: Mm -hmm. Yes, just in the first four chapters of your book, I thought, I'm glad I already have a book out or he'll think i'm stealing things from his book (laughs) (laughs) you've said (laughs) a lot of similar things and when you talk about the fear uh the real feelings i thought oh i know exactly what he's talking about
2: yeah (laughs) yeah trust me on the on the next sections of the book that gets released it's a complete roller coaster ride that switches gears completely so if you liked what you've heard already you'll probably uh uh, I'll just say, buckle up for the next. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right, so so let's let's talk about some of your stories, and then sometime before we uh, we end this, obviously we're going to tell everybody how to get the book. Obviously, it's on Amazon, correct?
0: Yes, uh huh, paperback and, and Kindle.
2: Okay, and we're going to post uh, some links and stuff to it, so uh, people can just go to this episode that you're listening on, and you'll be able to just click and take them straight to it. So let's talk a little bit about some of the stories. Can, do you remember what your very first paranormal experience was?
0: Oh, well, yes, that's really going back. Um, (laughs) when I was, uh, 11, my aunt died, she was, uh, only 20, very sweet. And after she passed, um, I woke up one night, uh, probably turning over, and I saw my mother walk up to my doorway, sort of in the light of the windows coming in the windows. And I said, "What are you doing there?" Just curious. And then, um, my saw my real mother actually walk up to the doorway and the the sort of wispy, um. Body that I saw just sort of fell down and disappeared, and and my mother asked me, um, I, I I don't know if she asked me what I was doing. I I think she saw what I saw, and I said, Oh, I thought you were something like I thought you were standing there, and so I think she saw, and I believe it was my aunt Nora, and then my uh, aunt who is only a year older than I am, it was, she was her baby sister, had the same experience. She woke up and this figure was sort of leaning over her kind of lovingly. And my grandmother said, don't worry, that's just Nora watching over you. And that seemed pretty normal. It didn't seem scary. And it wasn't, it wasn't like I thought, well, we're really, uh, you know, I have paranormal experiences. It just seemed like a normal sort of experience that Nora would probably come, but I, I wasn't really a believer in ghost at the time, but I, I really thought that was
2: probably Nora. I was going to say most of the stories that are in your book, are these all your stories or is a collection of stories from like you and your family and friends?
0: all of the above (laughs) Uh, (laughs) it was my stories and then my children started having their own experiences you know dreams and visions and hauntings and we just all started realizing this stuff is actually starting to happen a lot and that's when we all started sort of started discussing wow you know this what does this mean or how bad is it going to get or you know what what do we do about it and so it it it, um and then it entailed some of my neighbors that I had some dreams about some visions and that my daughters also so it just um sort of like you said as I started writing it was just I remembered more and more things, and then they're like, "Oh yeah, remember, Mom, the night this happened." And so, uh, it's a, it, mostly family stories, but it 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 also has some outside people in as well.
2: Do you think that your family is more sensitive than most to be able to have so many different stories amongst your group?
0: Well. When these things started happening and I could think about them for years, I put the really scary stories far away in my mind. I didn't want them to have happened. I didn't want to think about them. But as years went on, we could talk about it and I could think about it. I don't think about them a lot because uh, things still happen connected to some of these stories. So it's a little scary it's still a little scary um but yes we started reading and just listening trying to think well what could this be and i think i know my mother had dreams my grandfather on my father's side used to go out and gather uh herbs and treat uh you know um neighbors he was sort of a you know a medicine man and he <laughs> it sounds funny i had uh A large wart on my thumb when I was a child and I hated it and um, we were sitting on the porch one day I think I was about 10 and I said oh I hate this wart on my thumb and he said well I can remove that and he took my my hand and my thumb and he said something kind of I wouldn't know if it were a prayer or what and then he said now as an act of faith you have to bury two pieces of bacon and a cloth. And so my mother, when I went home, she did it for me. You know, my mother kind of knew things were strange. And, you know, I think it was about a week and a half, I was running outside and I realized it was gone. It was just, just gone. And that's not a big deal in the sense of that, except I don't know what my grandfather did, but it was more like a prayer something like that so i think it's kind of in our family yes
2: so obviously you you've listened to the first four chapters of the book and you know i talk about ex, uh, a similar experience with yes. uh, my gr- my great grandmother and uh, and burns now they mm-hmm. were native american mm-hmm. where are your relatives uh, have any native american background as well or is it something totally different
0: well uh my grandfather uh I only know his first wife was evidently Native American, and she died in childbirth. Uh, They weren't, my father's uh, heritage was not Native American. On my mother's side, um, they were coal miners from Tennessee and Kentucky and uh, lived in the uh, Wilder area, which you mentioned, Rugby, Tennessee, my great-grandmother her and her siblings and parents are actually on the registry of that church you mentioned at rugby. Oh, wow. now, they, yeah, yeah. <laughs> now they didn't live there. Evidently somehow they came you know, every Sunday and went to that church. Um, so I think on that side, because some of my great aunts as the years went on told me experiences, they had paranormal spiritual experiences of, uh, of, uh, uh, Of that type.
2: Tell me a little bit about, and I don't want to bring up a a bunch of bad memories, but you mentioned some of the stories you had were scarier than others. Give me an example (laughs) of of one or two of the stories that that you would consider to be scary.
0: Yes, my husband and I moved into a caretaker's house in um, 1975. And it was on a, I I won't mention it. I don't know what I should mention about that. It was, uh, belonged to a very wealthy family in Kentucky. And um, that was our, you know, our income was linked to that, that job. We didn't have a lot of money. And the house seemed very wonderful at first, And then uh, it started a few weeks after we were there. We slept upstairs and our three children were in the other room, a little twin bed and two cribs. And one night I heard noises, you know, downstairs and my husband was asleep. And then those noises became footsteps on the stairs and they were very heavy, very kind of clumsy, heavy steps. And I thought oh my goodness there's a burglar in the house I was terrified and I sort of grabbed my husband and he jumped up out of a sleep and he ran downstairs and he looked all around and he came back and he said well there's nobody down there the doors are locked so I that really scared me but I it's so funny I put that experience in my mind because I'm thinking no this is not going to happen in my life we had uh problems in our marriage you know things that we didn't have a lot of money and I thought this is not going to happen and so I pretended that didn't happen and then um uh it was probably a few months later my son would play with a little ball at night and he would bounce it you know before he went to sleep and I thought there was something odd about that and so one night he called me in and uh, Chris was I think he was seven seven and a half and he said, "Mommy, when I throw the ball, it stops and it comes back to me." And that gave me in the pit of my stomach. <laughs> that's that's I scary. Bet. Yeah, and so I didn't want to scare him, so I said, "Oh, well, that's funny," but I knew um, there was something. He wasn't just bouncing against the wall. I, I knew there was something about that. And so I would say a few probably a a few months later um, my daughter started uh, crying one night and I got up to fix her a bottle and I went downstairs and brought the bottle and I was standing by her crib and she was standing there and we were just talking I was you know just talking with her and all of a sudden on the door side of my son's bed there was a loud shuffling and then uh as if something heavy had been thrown down and, and and pulled across the floor and it's you know it was very scary and my daughter who was three we both looked and then she pointed and said look and her face was so twisted in fear and that was One thing that has left me angry all these years, because I knew she saw whatever it was in that room. And the fact that something would be so vile to scare a baby and continuously scared her and I It seemed to just focus on her, my daughter and myself. And um, and so I was standing there trying to think, make sense of that when ice cold water started uh, hitting me, being thrown at me. And that was, that was unbelievably scary. And so I ran into the bedroom and I told my husband, you know, he was sound asleep. And I said, water was hitting me. And he said, well, the roof's probably leaking, something like that. It wasn't raining. So I thought, okay, this, this didn't, is not normal, but okay. You know, this can't happen. I went back in, there was water around the floor, and it was just from around where I was standing. And then the next thing that happened, it was just an assault of water. It just, I felt I was being attacked with this ice cold water. And I went into the bedroom and I was physically pulling my husband up out of the bed. And I said, water is being thrown at me. And right as he sat up a large drop of water materialized in the air and hit my arm and so he jumped out of bed and um, ran in there and um, water was all over the floor just so that was the main thing. Uh, I knew I was being attacked and I knew my daughter had seen whatever was in the room with us. I knew something was in the room with us and it was it was terrifying. So um, I moved all of us downstairs. I moved the children into the living room and I moved us into the dining room. And from then on, no more water, but our bed, we slept on the um, a pullout couch downstairs. It would shake. Something would hit my side of the bed continuously. I was so scared. Tears would just come I wasn't exactly crying. Tears were just coming down my cheeks all the time. I was so scared. And my daughter, the other children were fine, but my daughter, Jessica, was being awakened. I felt deliberately awakened. And she would scream at night in the middle of the night. And of course, I would get up to comfort her. And when I was sitting in that house at night, I just knew something was targeting us. And then another night, she uh, looked at the television i know it sounds like a movie but she looked at the television which was off and she said look at that man and it, it was terrifying because she was seeing something that was scaring she was only three um yeah and you know it still brings a lot of emotions back and a lot of it was like you said anger and i was even angry that God, because I was praying and I felt like he wasn't hearing my prayers. He wasn't protecting us. And that something that shouldn't ever be able to happen in the real world was happening. And so we saved our money because his job was linked to that house. We had to save until we were able to move and we moved as quickly as we could to get away from that house.
2: Was he a believer about it? Was he a believer by the time you left or did he still just just move just because you really wanted to move?
0: He yes, he knew uh, he saw the water and he saw the floor and and he knew me and he knew that um, Jessica was just uh, I was at the point I I didn't know whether to take her to a uh, you know, a psychologist or to a minister but I I didn't know what to do because she was waking up at night and she had nightmares uh, until uh, in her twenties, I would say she would wake up and try to run. Uh, It's sort of the, just the trauma followed us. It follows. So I never talked about it and I didn't allow him to talk about it because I didn't want it to be part of our existence. And I didn't want to think about that house. I felt like, it was going to follow us. So that, that was really scary. Um, It's a very scary time.
2: You said uh, before you told that story that there are things that happen today that are attached to some of these scary things in the past. Was that the incident you were talking about? Or was there other scary things that the things today are attached to?
0: Well, we moved into a little apartment and for a year that seemed normal not that didn't happen nothing like that's real and life was going to be normal that's how i had focused my mind and it was and then a year later we moved into a little house and then it started again and it started with the shaping of the beds and um, mostly just focused on me the other two children um they never knew, and we didn't talk about. It. I didn't allow that to be talked about in front of them. Jessica still had nightmares, but um, I don't, I'm, I'm sure she didn't. She doesn't know the. She didn't know the story at that time. She just suffered from nightmares, but um, you know, one night my husband he worked eleven to seven mostly, and so one night I heard in the living room something hit the wall really hard and it scared my son and he said mommy something hit the wall and so I walked in there and I just knew it was starting again I just I had that feeling and it was my lighter it was a zippo lighter and it had been what I would say thrown against the wall Um, and so I picked it up and I told him he was in his bedroom and I said oh it's okay my lighter just fell but I knew it had been thrown and then I had a incidence of the alarm clock going off when it wasn't set or when it wasn't turned on, and finally, I just unplugged it and put it in the closet. Um, it just but I had that feeling and the um, the vulnerability because I wasn't a scary type person. I could walk in the dark, you know, stay by myself. It wasn't that, but I felt very vulnerable, like I was being sort of mocked, and uh, and and so I was just sort of uh, in its grip, and that's when I kept praying, and I kept praying, and then that's when I felt like help finally stepped in.
2: So that was when you were living in the apartment afterwards, correct?
0: <laughs> will, the apartment was fine. It was the little house that we rented on okay. Avenue mm-hmm. when it started back.
2: Sorry, I had to shut my door. Dogs are barking. <laughs> All right, so yep. then you lived in that house. What happened after you moved out of that house? Did you move into another location that where you had incidents? Um, yes,
0: we because um, um, financially we weren't very um, steady, and so we moved uh, a lot, and we found a farther out toward Crestwood a minister we finally started going back to another church and they said well there's some new houses out here to rent and come out this way and um that was fun that that seemed pretty clean it seemed pretty uh good but then the next move it started with uh the bed shaking again and being hit and that was really all that was the only thing uh uh, but it didn't stay. It didn't stay. So uh, I I think it's gone. <laughs> I think it's gone. But um, I'll tell you one interesting thing. When I when I went out to Wolfen because I knew the house would be torn down one day because they wanted to build huge homes out there. Um, I took some pictures, and my m- my ex mother in law, my husband's mother. Um, she wanted pictures taken and I said well I'll ride out there with you but I'm not going to the house I'm not going to the house um and uh so the lady who bought the mansion um I had told her I left her note on her her gate one day and I said I have some information about this house and I would like some information if you have it and so she called me and set me up with a lady with the historic society because they were trying to to save this house because it's very old and historic and they wanted to know what I knew about it. And I said, well, all I know is it's haunted and uh, I can understand historic, you know, I I would hate for, I guess, for it to be torn down, but I said, I don't really want anything to do with it. But she bought my book and she said, I settled down that night to read your book and there was a <laughs> there was a loud noise in my living room hmm. and she said she walked out there and she had um, her home is very like a, almost like a revolutionary home it's just like going back in time and these wonderful artifacts and everything and she had some antlers she said that sat on her mantle for years and they were in the middle of the floor and I said oh I said, well, and she said, I don't know how they got there, but she said, I just opened to read your book. So, um, and so things have, have continued, but, um,
2: and that's the house that you were a caretaker in, right?
0: Yes. Uh, my husband took care of the land. Oh, well, and one other thing about that, we had honeysuckle and bushes all around the fence. There was a small fence and then the rest was open field. And he took care of all that land. But because of all the bushes and honeysuckle, he never trimmed any of that. And when I spoke to the lady who had once lived there, she said it might have something to do with that cemetery under that row back there by the fence. And I said, what cemetery? And she said, there's, yes. And she said, there's a cemetery and it's all sunken down in the ground. I guess they... You know when they were clearing that land, and I said, "Well, I never do it." And I asked my husband; he was my ex-husband. He said, "I never knew it." So I thought, "Well, that might have been part of it—that there was an old cemetery." And she said, "I know it's been neglected. Maybe the people, because she believed that she's—in fact, she said her mansion was haunted," and and she said, "Maybe they're angry and." I said, well, that might explain some, but I don't think it, it might explain everything, you know, but that was really, and she said, well, you're welcome to go up there and check it out. And I said, wild horses could not drag me up to that cemetery. So, yeah. But uh Diane- story, yes.
2: I was going to say, Diana, it's been a pleasure having you on, and I love the stories that we told, and I want to remind everybody they can get Para Abnormal Kentucky, a collection of true stories on Amazon. It's actually very affordable price. It's only uh, uh, $2.99 if you want to get the uh, Kindle, and I believe it's only $9.99 for the paperback or $9.95, so you can't beat that. So I'm going to advise everybody to go get this. I'm sure it would make a fantastic Christmas gift and uh, make sure when you get the book you leave her a nice review on amazon
0: oh well thank you and there's angels in there there are dreams and uh you might check it out
2: (laughs) awesome thank you so much
0: well thank you jerry it's been a pleasure
2: now see isn't she the sweetest
0: she is the sweetest
1: for sure
2: and she's got some crazy stories Mm -hmm. man freaky stories
1: (laughs) no i'm glad she did that i'm glad she wrote that book
2: so you guys check out the book i'm gonna put a link into it in the podcast description so if you've forgotten and i'll put it on all of our social media too so go check her book out and leave her a nice review and speaking of books i may know somebody else who has a book that would probably make a good christmas gift so if you want one Write me and I'll get you one. Go to <laughs> HibblelyHorrorStories.com. You can get a personalized copy there or you can go to Amazon and get it. Settle. Yeah. That's your middle word. And when you order from me, as opposed to that big conglomerate, Amazon, you get uh, some stickers and you get some bookmarks and stuff like that. You get extra stuff for me. <laughs> so, all right, guys, thank you so much. We have enjoyed being your host for this evening. We hope you enjoyed listening. Yeah, we I love tried you guys. Cool. I know,
1: that was like random. <laughs> what the heck, man?
2: But we love you guys and we appreciate you. Thank you for everything you do for us.
1: We do love you guys forever and ever, and I hope you guys have a blessed week.